Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, February 6th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, The Believer's Greatest Victory, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Enjoy. When it comes to the book of Romans, we entitle it there, like the video said, The Gospel for All Time. Now, it's not a classic gospel. When you think of a classic gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are those gospels that sort of highlight the life of Jesus, where you get a chance to see him walking along and doing the different things that happen during his life. But it is clearly a gospel because it gives you the gospel message. The fact that we're sinners, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Chapter one begins by reminding us that Jesus is God and that as believers, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. And about halfway through chapter one, Paul stops off and he tells us that God actually is going to hold every single one of us responsible, guilty even, for not recognizing him and honoring him as God. In fact, in verse, or in chapter one, one of the things he tells us is is that people, when they stop honoring God, will begin to live lifestyles of their own choice rather than the lifestyles that their creator calls them to live. Chapter two, he sort of starts off on the religious crowd. There were lots of people there in Rome that were Jewish, were highly religious, but they were just as guilty. Chapter three, he tells us that we're not saved by works or by our lineage or by simply keeping the law. In chapter four, Paul tells us that we are justified, in other words, declared righteous by faith, not declared righteous by works or by circumcision or by the law. And then you get to chapter five and it was like a breath of fresh air. I mean, we just spent four chapters talking about sin and sinfulness and how all of us fall short of the glory of God. And then you get to chapter five and he begins talking about having peace with God. And that's sort of where we pick up this morning. The passage we're gonna be looking at this morning is gonna tell us that the death of Jesus really is a believer's greatest victory. Now, amazingly, it happens at a time when you and I are at our worst, The passage we're looking at this morning will tell you in verse six that it happens when you and I are weak. In verse eight, it will tell us that we're sinners. In verse 10, it will call us enemies. It seems like there's a lot of focus on us. When the truth is, the passage is clearly about, or the key here is Jesus's death and what it does. Did you ever see the musical Jesus Christ Superstar? Not the kind of musical you would want to see if you're hoping for theological truth, okay? Because it's a long ways from that. But in the story there, Jesus is not quite as committed, you know, to to sacrificially going to the cross. And Judas is not quite as bad. He's sort of more misunderstood. Both of those things are wrong, you know, theologically. But there's this one line in one of the songs that Judas sings that asks this question of Jesus. Did you know your death would be a record breaker? For me personally, it may not strike you the same way, but that is a great picture in my mind. A record breaker. I mean, if you think about Jesus' death, there has never been a death as moving, as well-known, as retold, 
as discussed, as counted on as Jesus' death. It's that death that provides the greatest victory that believers have. Now follow along with me here in chapter five as I read this, would you? Chapter five, starting in verse six, says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So what's gonna happen here is Jesus' death is gonna provide some experiences for us. The first thing you'll see here is in verses six through eight is it provides a perfect love. It's perfect here because it is not something that I get on my own. It's not a result of my efforts. It's not a result of a change of heart by me. It's not a result of me searching and you know, stumbling upon something or, or putting my best effort into doing something you know, personally and trying to be a better human being. It's not, it has nothing to do with my timing. It has everything to do with what God does. He loves me even when I didn't love him. Look what he says in verse six here. In fact, he's gonna tell us three things in this short little passage here. First of all, he tells us here about our condition at the beginning of this. He says, while we were still weak. Weak means unable or powerless. In other words, we are so weak, you are unable on your own. The passage is saying you cannot be good enough for God to save you. You cannot do enough good things to change you from being a sinner to being holy on your own. We're incapable. We can never please God on our own. Now, the reason why that's so important is because God knows exactly the situation we're in. Now, the second part of the verse here in verse six tells us God's timing. See, not only he says while we were weak, he says, but at the right time. God's timing here is absolutely perfect. I mean, the scriptures will tell us that. In Galatians chapter four, verse four, it tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That perfect moment he's talking about. At the exact right time, God sent his son. Titus 1.3 says that it happened at the proper time. But it's not just that. The last part of verse six tells us God's response. His response to the fact that the time had come, his response to the fact that we are weak on our own is that Christ died for us, the ungodly. Knowing our inability at the exact perfect moment, Christ died for us. That word ungodly here means those who live without regard for God. It's a pretty wide swath of people that fit into that. On one sense, you could have someone that's just as wicked as Hitler. On the other sense, you could be you know, talking about someone that maybe you just work with or live next to or maybe even someone in the family that basically doesn't care at all about God. And we've all probably been in a situation like that where you say something about the Lord and someone just goes silent because they have no interest in having this conversation at all. They could care less. You know, honestly, I, I, after I thought about it, 
you know, I've never actually even heard somebody say they, they hate God. And the word ungodly here doesn't mean God haters. It simply means those who don't care, which might be the same thing. I mean, you ever heard that, the, the old saying that the sort of the worst form of hatred is to have complete indifference or to be completely apathetic? If I think about my street, the street that I live on and talking to my neighbors that live up and down the street, you know, as soon as they find out that I'm a pastor, boom, everything changes in our conversation. <laughs> Mostly, there's no conversation. And because they just don't, they, they're not interested in having any discussion at all about anything spiritual. They would fit under that. They're ungodly. Doesn't necessarily mean they're evil beyond evil's purposes. They are just simply evil because they're not right with the Lord. See, the truth here is this passage sort of magnifies the beauty and the wonder of God's love and his affection for us in that while we, were, while we were ungodly, while we didn't care for him at all, while we could care less about what he was doing and what his plans were for me, he loved me. Verses seven and eight take it even a step further. It shows the contrast of sacrifice. Verse seven says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone would dare even to die. But verse eight, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, what's interesting is, you know, if you go back and you look at Jesus's words, in John chapter 15, Jesus makes a statement. John 15, 13, he says, well, you know, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Do you realize, though, that Paul is telling us here in chapter five of Romans that Jesus didn't die for his friends, he died for the ungodly. Enemies. People who don't care about his thoughts on life, his position on life. Those of us who were at our worst, and you know what he does? He makes us his friend. That's beyond imagination. I mean, it's absolutely supernatural. There is no earthly explanation for that at all. In fact, let me even take it a step further. You know, the truth is, is that, you know, it doesn't take much of a study to, to learn to see that the Bible calls God holy, that he is a holy God. In fact, if you were to go to Isaiah chapter six, verses one through three, you see this amazing picture of the prophet Isaiah getting this this scene that gets to look into heaven, into the throne room of heaven and see what happens there. And the Lord is there powerful and mighty and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and there's smoke and rumblings and, and all these angels and they, you know, they fly along and they cover their feet and they cover their eyes and they, cut, they fly with this and they call out antiphonally to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Because they want to make a statement. You could have just said, he's holy, and they could have stopped. But it lacked the power of saying it even more. It would be like me looking at my wife, you know, and saying, well, I love her. No, I love her. No, I love her. Do you get the message? Our God is holy, holy, holy. You say, why are you telling me this? Because if you go back to Romans chapter five, do you realize that our holy God is loving unholy beings? Us. We're ungodly. 
He loves us enough to give his baby boy, his son, up for us. If that does not feel like your greatest victory, I'm not sure I can help you. The amazing thing is this, this, this is what totally sets our belief system apart from every single belief system that, that it, there is in the universe. None of us did anything to earn his love. We didn't choose his love. We haven't aligned ourselves properly. We haven't discovered it. We're not holy like him, and yet he loved us. Do you know why this is so important? Because we can so easily forget that God loved us. For example, if God doesn't answer my prayers the way I really want him to, we begin to question his concern and his love in our lives. Like you ever pray that God would remove a desire that you're battling with and it's kind of holding you back spiritually and then he doesn't answer the way you wanted to and we tend to take a no answer like he doesn't love me or doesn't care when the truth is maybe he's putting me on the path of discipleship where he's asking me to trust him, to deny myself. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter one tells us that, that God may not take away my sin. In fact, he may allow me, or the, the, my wound, he may allow me to walk through this difficult moment because it gives me the opportunity to minister to someone and walk with them through their difficult moment. You say, well, he doesn't do that. The primary writer of the, of the New Testament is a guy named Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I've got this thorn in my flesh. Could you get rid of this for me? Three times. You know what the resolve was finally? A, an amazing moment of discipleship. Paul's resolve is God's grace is sufficient for me. That's all I need. The Lord just walk with me through it. Gail and I have four grandkids. Our youngest is a 16th month, 16 month old, and I mean, she runs everywhere, she doesn't walk anywhere. She runs everywhere. She's just a normal, you know, 60, she's trying, she's into everything and, and, and she doesn't like it when she's told no. Any parent ever have that, you know? Yeah, I mean, she doesn't like no very much. So what happens when, you know, when she wants to reach up and grab something and it's hot and her parents say no? She's not happy. Or they're outside and, and they see, you know, somebody running, you know, down the street or riding a bike or somebody's walking their dog and she takes off and she wants to run and run right out into the street and they stop her and they say, no, she's not happy. Or they stop and they, you know, they get some chicken wings and they get it with really hot sauce and they're eating the, their wings and stuff like that. But she doesn't get that, but she wants that because she sees them with that and they say no and she's not happy at that moment and she lets everybody know. No is not a sign that her mom and dad don't love her. No is a sign that they do love her. That's exactly what's going on here. They say no because they do love her. You know, as adult believers, you and I should understand that, right? You understand what no means from God sometimes? It's amazing how we should understand that one. But we don't always. 
You know, the beauty of this passage is that God's actions for us are not dependent upon our situation. It's not dependent upon our ups and downs. It's not dependent upon our emotions. Verse eight tells us that God demonstrates his love for us when we were at our worst, when we were enemies, sinners, not interested at all in his ways, God said, I'm going to love you. That's a victory. Now, beyond that, verse nine will tell you that God's death on the cross, this victory ours, secures our salvation. Look at verse nine, what it says here. It says, and since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the first time that Paul will use the word saved in Romans. That's a word that believers used to use a lot. People would say like, are you saved? Or, you know, when did you get saved? Or, or all of that. People probably are more likely today to say, I believe or I trusted. But this, the word saved there is actually a really good word picture to use. And it really sort of explains the three tenses of salvation really well. Biblically, salvation is past tense, called justification. It's present tense, sanctification. It's future tense, glorification. The salvation of God is at work in all of that. Past tense, why salvation is something that did happen. I mean, Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction. He satisfied everything that needed to be satisfied right there. To trust in his death on the cross to pay for our sins is how God declares us righteous. We are justified. But what Jesus did on the cross was not just a historical event. God's supernatural power is still at work even right now. Presence tense wise, I'm still being saved. Sanctification happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's future tense as well. Paul mentions here in verse nine that future tense when he says that Christ's death will save us from his wrath. Don't miss that. Don't hide that away and pretend that it doesn't say that. We are saved by Jesus from Jesus' wrath. Now think about that. All of us who once dishonored him or completely ignored him by faith will experience his salvation. He shed his blood on the cross and that was powerful enough to take care of all of our sins, past, present, future. It's interesting here because if you were to look at verses 10 and 11, we're not gonna look at it right now, but they actually sort of signify the extent of Christ's death as it keeps giving over and over again. Verse 10, it says much more. Verse 11, more than that. There's a third thing that happens here. Verse 10 tells us that we have a healed relationship. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You know, the word enemies here is sort of self-explanatory. I don't need to go too far off into that. But the point being is that through it all, we get reconciled, which means two things. One, it means that you and I have peace with the Father. And two, it means perseverance 
because you and I are saved by his life. Now, really important, I wanna make sure you catch this. You are saved not because of what you do, not by your life. You are saved because of his life. The power is all in Christ. That's why it should be such a humbling thing. That's why it drops us to our knees because, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff like that and what I realize is it's his work. It's his work that not only saved me, it's his work that keeps me in the faith. See, Jesus didn't just die on the cross and now he's up someplace in heaven basking in his glory or taking a victory or lap around all the universes. He is working on my behalf even right now. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, that would be all of us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since we, he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you catch that? What is Jesus doing right now? Making intercession for for you. The fact that Jesus reconciles us to the Father also explains our new assignment as believers is that we now have the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation Verse 20 says, tell, he tells us that we are his ambassadors, that we are on assignment by the king of kings, that God is making his appeal through us. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that once you've been changed by Christ, the gospel is now your responsibility. Now, I'm just gonna be a fleshly man for a minute, okay? Wouldn't it be a lot easier if God would just sort of let the night sky come across real dark at night and then every single night it would go, this day produced and directed by God. Then you could just go out to your neighbors and go, see? Wouldn't that be cool? And yet he didn't do that. He took the gospel message, which is the most important truth you could possibly know. He took the most important truth and he gave it to his most valuable possession, us. You see, we're the ones that he sent his baby boy to die for. The ministry of reconciliation, sharing the gospel, the hope of Christ, being forgiven, that's ours now. It's ours. You know, I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come up and join me. The fourth thing here, the final thing here that you'll see that Paul tells us is the reason why this victory is ours in Christ is what comes with it is a change of heart. Look at verse 11. He says, much more that, than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, I don't know if you're a reader or not, but one of the books you probably want to pick up at some point is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. The, the, the key person in Pilgrim's Progress is a young man at this point named Christian. Christian is the guy who's journeying along and he has this burden on his back called guilt. And he's trying to get rid of that and he runs into a guy named Mr. Legality. 
And Mr. Legality tells him, hey, you, what you need to do is you need to go to, the, you know, to the, the Mount of Morality and climb it. Try to be better morally. That's what you just need to do. Just be better morally. He says, and then when you get to the very top, that burden, it's gonna get lighter and lighter and get to the top and the burden will just fall off. And so Christian believes, well, that's what I should do. So he goes to the mountain, but instead of the burden become lighter and lighter, as he's climbing the mountain of morality, the burden gets heavier and heavier. doesn't make sense he looks up at the very top he pauses and looks up at the top and he sees the cross at the same time he stops and he looks back and he sees a grave and when he does that that burden just pops right off and it's gone it rolls all the way down the hill and lands in the grave gone forever Not only that, but then he looks back up to the cross and everything begins to make sense to him. It makes complete sense to him to the point that he, he literally celebrates. He, he jumps for joy, he shouts, he, he cries out, he's so thankful. The cross, he realized, is a blessing. The grave is a blessing, but better than all of those blessings are the one that went to the cross and went to the grave and came out of it for me. You know, I don't know how you view that. You know, you may have experienced some difficult moments in your life before or even since you've trusted in Christ. I would encourage you to look to the cross. Look and see what Jesus has done for you. Because the passage here are very clear that Jesus has loved us perfectly in a way that we could not have loved him. He has secured our salvation by his life, not ours. He's healed our relationship with the Father and it brings about a change of heart in our lives. This is a believer's greatest victory. And it should be your victory. And it, you know what? It can be your victory. It could be your victory this morning. You say, well, how am I supposed to respond to all this truth? You respond to it exactly the way that Paul tells us in verse 11, with rejoicing. Do you know what rejoicing means in our modern day language? Worship. You say, well, I don't, where do I even start? Paul in Romans 12 verse 1 tells us, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You know what it starts with? If you're brand new and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you start by giving yourself to the Lord, by trusting in him, trusting his work, not yours, but trusting in him and putting all your confidence in him and, and inviting him to take complete control of all that you have by believing in him. You say, maybe, well, I've done that. You know, I, I've, I've been there, I did that, but I don't know what's going on in my life. Could I encourage you that Revelation chapter two, verse five, when Jesus writes and he speaks to the church in Ephesus, he tells them, he says, you know, I have this one thing against you. You've kind of grown cold in your faith. And he says these words. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Remember who you used to be before I saved you and repent. Maybe that's some of you. 
I would encourage you that this morning, you need to let Jesus's victory be your greatest victory. It will change everything in your life. At the end of everything, there's gonna be a group of people that are gonna be down here ready to pray. They'd love to pray for you if you're going through a hard time, pray with you. They'd love to be able to tell you about how you could begin that relationship with Christ. We were created to honor God, to serve him, to represent him. But you cannot do that unless you understand fully what it means, what he's done for you on the cross. Father, would you move mightily in the lives of our people so that we might honor you with everything, God, and trust you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to die for us. We pray that we would love and appreciate all that you've done, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Believers, this is your greatest victory, that Jesus has loved you so much that he has gone to the cross to make you his own. Live like that. That's what the world is looking for. They're looking for, is something really amazing and wonderful and things about your faith? I mean, what is it? The fact that Jesus loved me enough to go to the cross for me. Live like it's your greatest deed and see what God does. God bless you. Love you all. Have a good day.